So Joshua chapter 11. And it came to pass when Jabin, king of Hazer, had heard those things, that he sent to Jobab, the king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Ashab, and to the kings that were on the north of the mountains, and of the plains south of Shinaroth, in the valley and in the borders of Dor on the west, and to the Canaanite on the east and on the west, and to the Amorite, and to the Hittite, and the Persezite, and the Jebusite in the mountains, and to the Hivite under Hermon, Hermon in the land of Mizpeth. And they went out, they and all their hosts with them, much people, even as the sand that is upon the seashore in multitude, with horses and chariots very many. And when all these kings were met together, they came and pitched together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Be not afraid because of them, for tomorrow about this time I will deliver them up to be all to be slain before Israel. Thou shalt huff their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua came and all the people of war with him against them by the waters of Meron suddenly, and they fell upon them. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, who smote them and chased them unto great Zidon and to Misrothmaim. I thought if I say it quick enough, it sounds like how I have to pronounce it. And unto the valley of Mishef eastward, and they smote them until they left them none remaining. And Joshua did unto them as the Lord bade him. And he huffed their horses and burned their chariots with fire. And Joshua at the, that time turned back and took Hazor and smote the king thereof with the sword. For Hazor before time was the head of all those kingdoms. And they smote all the souls that were therein with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. And there was none any left to breathe. And he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings, and all the kings with them, did Joshua take, and smote them with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them, as Moses the servant of the Lord commanded. But as for the cities that stood still in their strength, Israel burned none of them, save Hazor only. That did Joshua burn. And all the spoil of these cities, and the cattle, and the children of Israel took for a prey unto themselves. <clears throat> But every man they smote with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. Neither left they any to breathe. And the Lord commanded Moses his servant. As the Lord commanded Moses his servant, so did Moses commanded Joshua, and so did Joshua. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. So Joshua took all the land, the hills, and all the south country, and all the land of Gosen and the valley, and the plain, and the mountain of Israel, and the valley of the same, even from Mount Halak, that goeth up to Shear, even to Balgat, in the valley of Lebanon, under Mount Hermon. And all their kings he took, and smote them, and slew them. And Joshua made war a long time with those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel, save the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. And all other they took in battle. For it was the Lord to harden their hearts, 
that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might destroy them utterly, and <clears throat> that they might have no favor, but that he might destroy them as the Lord commanded Moses. And at that time came Joshua and cut off the Anakims from the mountains, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from the mountains of Judah. And from all the mountains of Israel, Joshua destroyed them utterly with their cities. So last week, we, of course, we spoke about the, or two weeks ago, we spoke about the uh, conquest of Joshua in the southern region. And we saw that there, too, they were utterly slaughtered and they were brought to naught. And we saw also that there was much of a miraculous nature in those preceding chapters. And uh, similar as to here, we saw that southern allegiance of King Azanadek, who came to a dramatic end, and his four friends as they were trapped in a cave and they were eventually killed. And they hung upon the trees for all to see. Like Pharaoh and his armies, they had rushed into the fiery judgment and the unavoidable judgment of God. And we also see that the soldiers had to destroy large sections of these cities and people, women and children included, just as the law of God had prescribed to Moses. And Israel had then, in the last chapter, returned to Gilgal, where they had landed after, first after the 40 years of journey into the wilderness. And in this chapter, we see the rest of the land being conquered, this time the northern section. And now we are given, just to give a bit of a time frame, it seems like if we read these chapters we've read so far that they all did this in a, a reasonable amount of time, like a couple of weeks or so. But it does say in verse 18 that Joshua fought with those kings a long time. I was thinking of the prayer we heard this morning from Matt, you know, the Christian life is a long life, and we, we see that here. These battles took a long time. Um, in Joshua 14.10, for instance, it tells us that Caleb was about 85 years old, so most scholars think that this time frame was about four to seven years to, uh, to get done. And these were long battles. They were hard battles. Obstacle after obstacle was presented to Joshua and his army. Just like in the Christian life. You know, we hear it every time we pray on Sunday, the, the battles that come to us and that have to be uh, fought. Sometimes the battle against unbelief. And uh, we battle in prayer. But always with the Lord's strength, of course, and directed by his word. And battles will come the rest of our lives. And we see this in Joshua. And so keep that in mind, that it shows it was a long battle. And Joshua was very a great, faithful commander. He was steadfast. He was stable. He, was, he had one goal in mind, to be, to be obedient to the law of God and to what he had heard from Moses which meant the destruction and the conquering of the enemies of God. And it was a task that was completed by him. And he would set a great example as a future leader uh, to future leaders and kings of Israel. 
So after the great victory at Jericho, he did not sit back and said to himself, well, this was easy. The Lord will do everything for us. Well, of course, the Lord did. But Joshua did not use it to slack off. And we see that constant theme here where Joshua worked hard for where they got, even though the Lord always provided the victories. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 verse 12 says, Beloved, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as much in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Perhaps you read this chapter and you think another chapter with battles, with difficult names, with kings. Why is it important to read? Why not just a few lines that say Joshua conquered the northern part with great success? Why this long, drawn-out, sometimes tedious section? Well, we know that the Lord does not waste his words. There's nothing in Scripture that is not for our benefit. Sometimes it may be harder to find, and we will see that in the, the chapters that follow when the land is divided. I'm not sure how I'm going to go about those, but um, some sections are a bit more tedious, perhaps. But all Scripture is given for our benefit, for our reproof, for uh, doctrine and instruction and correction that we may grow thereby and find encouragement and above all to see the greatness of God in it. As many times as we see in these chapters, themes are repeated or are shown from a slightly different angle perhaps. Um, one section shows more doctrinal, other sections more practical, the practical issues of life, others still the great sovereignty of God and God's attributes as we have seen here in Joshua, and how God is sovereign even over the hearts of his enemies. Keep in mind also, when you think about that, when you think about those repeated themes, it is likely what we need, isn't it? Day to day, we still fight the battle of being faithful, being obedient, trusting, you know, we need to be reminded of that. Sometimes we're most prone to forget the very basic uh, principles of the Christian faith. Some very basic things we forget and we slide back. In it, we often see the power and the grace of God that brings salvation. In this chapter, for instance, the writer really wants you to know and to impress you, your mind and your imagination with the enormity of the forces they're up against how massive they were, how formidable the enemies are. Humanly speaking, it was kind of impossible to win. Notice again, it is in the beginning of this chapter, as we have seen in chapters 9 and 10, there's another confederacy, another king, Jabin of Hazor, who figures that he can be successful as a united front against Israel. In the last chapter, we saw that southern allegiance that was set up mostly against Gibeon, and Israel was asked to help the Gibeonites, and they did. But this time the assault is directly 
met against Israel. And we notice again how utter foolishness these kings are by this time. Israel has yet to lose one battle, and they have heard of the miraculous events that have accompanied many of those battles. One commentator, A.W. Pink, writes, It is a trite remark to say that history repeats itself. Nevertheless, it is one which casts an unfavorable reflection upon the fallen human race, for it is acknowledged that one generation falls, fails to profit from the faults of those that have gone before them, and they'll often fall into the same pit. So this king and his fellow kings with him are like the people that the Lord Jesus spoke about. He said, by hearing ye shall hear and not understand, and by seeing ye shall see, but not, shall not perceive. Natural man will not see the things of God. They see no beauty in his law and in his gospel. And Jabin is a great picture of another fallen sinner. He does not see his danger. He's in a dreadful place. Doom is just around the corner. And he is going headlong into it. So we see here for the first time that the Canaanites really going against the offense against Israel. Israel had always gone against them in Jericho and Ai and other places. And in the previous chapter too, of course. But this time they go against them. So King Jabin is kind of a ringleader and he puts the armies together. And you see that in verses 1 to 5. And it's an impressive army. Verse 4, speaking in hyperbole or an exaggeration, makes the point that there was a lot of people there. Not only that, but they also had horses and they had chariots as Egypt did. A vast number of people now assembled against Israel. Perhaps in your mind's eye you can see it. A sea of people, strong Arabian horses, which they're famous for in this area, and many pulling them with chariots. The advantage of a chariot is, is clear, isn't it? You could move troop, troops very fastly. You could circle and circle the enemy. You could move supplies and weapons quickly. Many of these chariots were made of iron. We find out later in Judges. Some of them have had, had knives or sights on the sides, or as they moved, they were uh, cutting everything within its path as they rotated. And uh, it was kind of like a, a modern-day tank. Israel, on the other hand, was on foot. Actually, they were forbidden to have horses. Deuteronomy 17, verse 6. But he shall not, speaking about the future kings of Israel, but he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord has said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. So they were forbidden to have horses for a number of reasons. One is that they would not, we read it this morning in Psalm 147, that they would not put their trust in horses or modern technology, that they would not become prideful with the amount of chariots they had, but the amount of horses they had at their disposal. 
or perhaps that the king would use it against his own people. Isaiah 31, 9, 31.1, sorry. Woe unto them that go down to Egypt for help and stay on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. So it was basically a warning against the lust of the flesh and the eye and the pride of life. That was the main reason that they could not have. It was a protective from the Lord to tell them that. Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. So you get the picture that is painted before us. Horses versus soldiers on foot, smaller army versus a vast army, tanks versus simple weapons that the Israelites had. The difference is stark, and humanly speaking, the odds will be very low. But Joshua knew the scripture, and the Lord had pre-warned him as he read it, Deuteronomy 20, verse 1. When thou shalt go out to battle against thine enemies, and see his horses and chariots, and a people more than thou, <clears throat> be not afraid of them, for the Lord thy God is with thee, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Think of the long history of the people of God back in Israel that we've read so far, or in the early church, or in church history since. Enemies of all stripe and kinds have come up against, like armies, against the people of God. We've prayed about it this morning. Even today, this very day, people are physically threatened. Many times, if you look at recent history, we see battles that are being brought up against our mind, against our doctrine, against the scriptures, and always against Christ, of course. Think of the war on the supernatural uh, belief of the Bible that has been fought in the last 300 years or so, causing widespread liberalism in churches. Think of making the Bible a, a wax figure. Not believing in the literal resurrection of Christ. Many denominations have gone that way. Think of the war that Satan makes against creation. Millions of people believe that they are here by chance. Suppressing the glories of, that we see in nature and the design and the purpose and attributing it to, to chance. It's an assault on God. Think of the confusion out there today, what it is to be male and female, the idea that you can change it. And we could go on and on, isn't it? You can see that the chariots are circling around us with all these ideas and all these attacks. And they're sometimes, for seasons, they are getting closer and closer. They want us to join them. They just don't, don't want to be left alone. They want us to approve of them and join them. And if you're not, you are their enemies. And think of how many churches in the last hundred years or so have abandoned many vital doctrines of the Christian faith, and many have no gospel to tell. 
Well, the church does not pick up swords. We don't fight against flesh and blood. But yet, in those seasons, again, the Lord raises up people, men of the word, men of conviction, to help stand up against these errors. Stand up again for the gospel and for the soundness, for sound teaching. Think of the Reformation. It started very little against a powerful church at a time. He had all the, the money at their disposal and wealth and how it changed the world. And it is happening. That is happening over and over. Think of revivals. Think of nations that used to be completely pagan where large percentage of the population is now Christian. We have that promise from the Lord himself that the gates of hell will never prevail against the church and his people. Remember when Satan stirs up people against the church, he does it mainly against God. He goes against Job, but really he goes against and he assails the faithfulness of God. When Satan attacks us, he does so because of our relation to Christ, our relation to God. When Paul in the book of Acts was harassing the church, Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. And what did the Lord say? He said, why do you persecute me? And in this book, we see in the book of Joshua, we see a picture of Christ being victorious against Satan and his demons. Verse 5, we see these kings joining together against Israel at the waters of Merom. We're not told why they are there, but probably for these kings, it was a strategic place, a good spot to gather. And where they all came together, it was at a higher elevation, most commentators think. And they would have gone lower to fight against Joshua. They, for certain, did not expect to be attacked here yet. How often is it, sinner, how often is it that we think we're at a safe spot, we're secure, no one sees us, and yet the Lord sees all. He finds us out. Think of the kings of the last chapter. They thought themselves to be safe in a cave and it became their grave. How much better it is, as David writes in Psalm 91, he that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him will I trust. Here we see again, as we saw before in verse 6, that Joshua is reminded before the battle starts not to be afraid of them, not to fear them, not to look too closely at their number or start counting the chariots versus how many people they have or the horses, but to trust in the words that the Lord had already given him many, many times. I will give you this land. You will be victorious. And tomorrow, these folks will be dead. Fear them not. Joshua feared God only, and that was the key. If we fear God, we should have nothing else to fear what men can do to us. And notice the timing of these promises. Time and again, they came to Joshua at the right time, when he needed them the most. They probably meant for Joshua to tell him 
to the, the rest of Israel. Joshua has always shown himself to be very courageous. He was never faltering. We don't see him faltering. And he trusted in God throughout this book. And he would give that message to the rest of his army. How many and how many more promises do we have at our disposal today that we can grab a hold of, that we can think of? Are you making use of them? As the daily battles come against you, as the issues of life come up, as your own sinful nature comes up, are you using them? Are you using them to fight the flesh, the world, and the devil? A.W. Pink again he says, the more we meditate on the veracity of the promiser, the more will faith be strengthened. Is the word of God the food for your faith? Does it nourish you? Does it make you obey and energize you? If not, our fires will burn low, won't it? And our heart will grow cold. He also is commanded to huff the horses or hamstring likely meaning to cut off the Achilles tendon at the back of the legs so that they will become useless. And the chariots had to be burned. Israel may not borrow these items for the rest of the war, lest they are drawn away and learn from the pagan nations and that they would trust no more in the Lord, but that they would look elsewhere. Now again, in verse 7, we see that sudden move of Joshua and his army. We're not precisely told how he did this. It's a, quite a distance from where he was at, Gilgal, to where the other place is. Um, but uh, all of a sudden, he is, he is there. And it's interesting to see again that the promise is given first. And the next action we see that Joshua has moved into action. He gets up there where these kings are probably overnight. Promises and God's sovereignty do not negate the lack of work. Battle and action go, that is what Joshua does. It stimulates him, it energizes him into action. And that's a great example again that we have here from, from Joshua, his obedience without delay. One Commentator writes, divine sovereignty creates confidence. If it stops us from doing the things we ought to do, we have a wrong view of it. The promises are secure, but Joshua uses his brain and strategies and surprises this Lord's enemy. The outcome is certain for Joshua, and he now goes and takes it. Well, we see for a second time in a in a, in, a, in a short period, that the allegiance, the alliance rather, is decimated. Verse nine, verse eight and nine, and they were chased into different places. They were brought to a swift end, and Joshua did with the horses and chariots as he was commanded. You can probably sympathize with some of the soldiers. You know, we're tired of walking up and down all these mountainous passes would not be handy for the rest of the campaign, would not speed things up a bit. Why not these, use these horses? Didn't God make these horses too? How our reason often will cloud the will of God. 
But our ways are not his ways, isn't it? And our thoughts are not his thoughts. And let us completely trust in God and see how his works unfold. Verses 10 to 15, we see that the head of the allegiance, King, ha- King Hazor's city, is destroyed and burned. They're all killed. And with the rest of the king's cities, they're also captured, but not burned. They are kept and they are plundered. They are told they could do this in Deuteronomy 6, verse 10. It shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land, which he swear unto thy fathers, to Abram and to Isaac and to Jacob, <clears throat> to give thee great and goodly cities, which thou buildest not, and houses full of good things, which thou fillest not, and wells digged, which thou diggest not, and vineyards and olive trees, which thou plantest not, and when thou shalt have eaten and be full. That's a great picture again of salvation, isn't it? The things that we inherit when we have the Lord Jesus Christ, we did not work for. We did not own. And all the gifts and the treasures that are in him were bought with a price. But, but it was what the Lord had commanded to Moses that Joshua exactly did. He left nothing undone. And he did what he was told. And here we see the great difference between Joshua and Saul. You remember Saul at one occasion. He was told to slaughter the whole city. Don't keep any of the spoil. And he couldn't but help himself to keep some of it. And when he was asked what is the noise in the background. And he quickly made it into a religious thing. He said well these are for the Lord. But he was a great picture of a, a disobedient king. A one that did his own will in his own way. And he lost his kingdom because of it. Verses 16 to 19, it goes on further to summarize the battle of the northern region. And with the exception of Gideon, everything was taken. And you see here a wholesale slaughter. An all-out war against the inhabitants of Canaan. Of course, in the end, it all came The winning streak all came from the Lord, and his hand was upon Joshua, and he uses various means and ways. Earlier in Joshua, we saw many miracles almost in every chapter, and that is not the case in this one. They really leaned upon the promises. Hard work was done, yet the Lord had his hand in every detail so that they possess the land. Probably in those first battles in Jericho and Ai, it was established to show the people that he doesn't need any of you. This is just a picture of what he can do. But later on, they were to be fighting battles as normal. The one other thing he does, and which is most crucial, which, which God does, which is most crucial, that makes Israel win, in verse 20 we see, for it was the Lord to harden their hearts that they, could, that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might destroy them utterly, that they might have no favor, <clears throat> but that he might destroy them as the Lord commanded Moses. He hardened their hearts that they would unite in battle 
against Israel and they would lose. Here we see some of that hardening of heart that we saw in Exodus. Pharaoh, that wicked king, who enslaved the people of Israel, treated them so badly, put up his fist against God, told Moses he would never listen from the outside, outset already to this God. And God showed him his powerfulness, that he could even control the heart of this king. Apostle Paul writes that in Romans 9, For the scripture said unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, that, <clears throat> that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom will he, he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. These kings had already been given over to sin. God in judgment hardened their hearts so that they would fight their own demise, was sure. And how great is his power displayed in this? Probably greater yet, isn't it, than when the walls of Jericho come down. Think about it, especially we see in our day the rulers, our leaders, war against God. Their boundless arrogance, inventors of evil, arrogance. But their day will come. Their fall will be spectacular unless God has mercy on them. For these kings, the day of grace was long past. God had given them over to their wickedness and they became fools. And this is evident as they keep on fighting. They keep on going against Israel, even though the evidence of them winning the battles, the evidence of the supernatural of God, hand of God upon them was clear. No hope they had ever of winning. But God had hardened these hearts, and he would bring them in this way to destruction. He made them so determined that it would be their death. Rahab and Gibeon, of course, were exceptions. They had done the opposite. They had seen the works of God and they had run to God instead of running against Him. But these nations had become to a point of no return. Solemn thought, isn't it? The Apostle Paul speaks about that in Romans 1. This still happens today. The hardening of hearts. How important it is as you hear these words or as you sit around the dinner table at home with your family perhaps doing devotions to take heed and to listen. The psalmist warns this in Psalm 97, 95. He says, Oh come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God and we are the people of His pasture. And the sheep of his hand. Today if you will hear his voice. Harden not your heart. As in the provocation. As in the day of the temptation. In the wilderness. Now incredible dangerous it is. To sit here Sunday after Sunday. Or at home. To hear the gracious gospel call. And to harden your heart. To make yourself believe. Maybe there's another day. There's another day I can truly repent. How foolish and what a brazen assault and rebellion that is to God. A fist raised against him. 
who gives us life, who gives us breath each and every day, and who sends us a Redeemer, the Lord Jesus. Verses 21 and 22, we read that Joshua now dealt with the Anakims, that he cut them off in all the places where they lived except a few cities. And one of them is Gath, and we would later get Goliath out of it. These were the giants that the ten spies spoke about way back in Numbers 13. You recall the account. Twelve spies were sent out to spy out the land. Moses picks them, one from every tribe. Caleb and Joshua are two of them. He told them to explore the land, to check out the the fruitfulness of the land, the, the fields, the woods, and so on. And after 40 days, they return. They bring some fruit, large clusters. A report was given. Yes, it was a land filled with milk and honey. But 10 of the spies said, the land is, sorry, and, and they talk about these Anakims, and they said, and there we saw the giants, the son of Anak, which become of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. They were frightened by these giants. They were very scared. And no matter how many times they had seen the miracles of God before, his power, they were unbelieving. Unbelieving of what the promises of God had been given them. And it caused the whole nation to wander for 40 years in the desert. Non-belief is, is very serious. And all of those that are 20 years of age and under would make it, but all of those over that age would not, except Joshua and Caleb. So Joshua and Caleb have seen these giants before. All those years ago, and now at a very old age, they had to face him once again. Not only that, but they had to fight him. And fighting, they did, and they were largely defeated. They knew that God would not abandon them now. After all, they had done for him. And lastly, you see him going to these giants. Think of it. These giants has caused a lot of fear, a lot of unbelief in the Israelites. And it resulted in a lot of death and misery in the desert as they never saw the land flowing with milk and honey. It could have been theirs had they only trusted God. <clears throat> he had already proven himself to be faithful, strong, to defeat every animal, enemy, unbeatable, and all-powerful. In some ways, that generation was like the kings, wasn't it? Their hearts were hardened as well. And here in these last verses with the slaying of the Anakim, it's barely a story. We're not told how they did it or with what or how long it took. It's almost written down as an, as an afterthought. Quite something. Is that not often the case with the things that we come against in our life? Things we fret over, 
worry about a lot, spend time analyzing it, and God deals with it. Especially when we bring it, we don't bring it up in prayer. We, we go about it in a sinful way. Think of Joshua and Caleb talking to themselves and saying, wow, this was it. God beat them. Our brothers and our sisters, our parents, our aunts and uncles missed all of this because they were afraid of this. But it was not a problem for God. When we come to our problems, we often have a human view and we're often mistaken. We think dark providences or evil reports are gloom and doom and do not see the hand of God in in it. That God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. And then one part of that goes, ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord with feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Let us take all our evil reports to the Lord and call out to him as he commands us to do so and lay our case before him. Lest we look back at many years of worrying and fretting about something that the Lord would have dealt with, he would have trusted in him and brought it before him. When difficult issues arise in our life, do we become despondent? Do we become upset, unbelieving? Or do we see these obstacles as an aid to our faith, to trust the sufficiency of our God, and to remember the promises that he who promises will also perform it. In this last verse we see that the land was now largely defeated and it will soon be divided amongst all the tribes that are there with Joshua and the land rested from war. Last verse. <clears throat> you can say that the long journey from Israel, from Egypt so now has come to kind of a close. A new chapter has begun. God has proven his word. They're in the land. And against all odds they won every battle. And they have a season of rest. God began a good work. Back as they crossed the Red Sea. As they walk across the water. were standing beside him. One side and the other. And God would finish it. God would see them through. All along they would see his great hand, his mighty wonders, his majesty, his holiness, his wrath, and his power displayed for all to see. Time and again, year after year, it was there. And yet, not all entered into that rest, as we know it today. Time and time again there was unbelief, there was doubt, there was sin, there was murmuring against God who had been so merciful to them. Hebrews 4 warns about not entering that rest like many of their grandparents had done. They had an evil heart of unbelief and they did not 
enter into that rest of Canaan. For us, the gospel of the Lord Jesus calls us to enter into that rest. And it's laid out in the gospel and its promises. Ken Hughes writes, and I'll close with this, the rest referred to at the end of chapter 11 is therefore a prototype or foreshadowing of the rest that remains for the New Testament people of God. Joshua could only replicate in the physical, temporal sphere what Jesus had won for his people in his spiritual and eternal kingly rule. <clears throat> that is God's gracious intention for his people. Let us therefore labor to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Real faith shows itself in obedience. And while that faith is never a work that we can earn our salvation with, it is a means by which we receive and appropriate the promises of the gospel, made real for us in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus, that Joshua points us to, to his greater and infinitely greater namesake. Of course, the people of Israel ultimately did not have rest in the land. There will be other wars. There will be disobedience. They will be taken out of the land. So that rest was not it. But that rest pointed towards the Lord Jesus. We don't work to enter into that rest. We go to him that fought the battle for us. The wages of sin is death. But by the faith but by faith and trust in Christ and his work, he gives us his righteousness. He gives us his rest. He completes the work. He slays the dragon, Satan. He brings judgment upon sin. And sin was judged upon the cross. And lastly, he gives us that rest. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all these accounts that you've preserved for us, that you've written down. Father, I think of all these kings that died. Lord, they were people with families, with wives, friends and neighbors. Lord, and judgment came upon them. Father, let that be a lesson for us, that it is appointed for us once to die and then the judgment. We thank you for that great way of escape that you have given to us in the gospel. Father, I pray that all of us here would know that rest in Christ. Lord, that we truly would trust in him, that we would not work ourselves a plan of doing our own things and to be acceptable in your sight, but that, he would, that we would trust in him. Father, we thank you that he promises that you will give us rest. He will give us rest as we trust in him. Father, I pray for the unconverted. Pray that they truly would seek him, that they would not harden their heart, that you would not harden their heart and be merciful to them. And all of us, Lord, even as believers, that we be soft in heart, that we be easily convicted by your word and that we will bring our sin again before thee. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen.